Hello, my name's Ron Blue, and I consider it a tremendous privilege to be able to talk to you and share some of my life experiences. We all have unique lives and unique experiences, and mine happens to be in the financial world. I got my MBA from Indiana University in 1967. I went to work on Wall Street for three years with the world's largest CPA firm. Then I left there and started my own CPA firm and started a firm that has become very successful. Uh, so I say that I spent three years learning the best of Wall Street and I, seven years learning the best of Main Street. And then uh, my wife and I felt called to full-time ministry, so I joined uh, Crew Ministries and spent two years traveling to Africa and I saw the third world. That's a whole different perspective than the Wall Street world that I had worked in or the Main Street world that I had worked in. In fact, I met a pastor uh, in Kenya when I was visiting there and this pastor, uh, we were looking down at his mud hut and uh, I asked him a question. I said, what is the greatest barrier to the spread of the gospel in this part of the world? And I thought he would say communication or transportation or money or tribalism or something like that, but he didn't. He said the greatest barrier to the spread of the gospel in this part of the world is materialism. And I said, well, what do you mean by that? And he said, well, if a man has a mud hut, he wants a stone hut. And if he has a thatch roof, he wants a metal roof. If he's got one acre, he wants two acres. And if he's got one cow, he wants two cows. Well, now that taught me something. I'd been on Wall Street and lived in America all of my life and thought that materialism and consumerism was unique to America. But what I really learned right there was that it was unique to the heart. Uh, and God's word reveals that to us. So here I had the Wall Street and the Main Street experience and the third world experience. And I felt called by the Lord to begin to help Christians plan and manage their money so that they'd have more money to give away. And I started a financial planning practice. Uh, today that practice uh, has about 8,000 clients, has managed many billions of dollars. And I spent 25 years giving financial advice, but here was the difference. What I found when I started the financial planning practice, as I got into God's word and I saw God's word, I found that everything that worked well on Wall Street Everything that worked well on Main Street when it came to finances really was foundational to a biblical principle or biblical wisdom. I was asked to testify before a congressional subcommittee in the early 90s and the subject was uh, finances and people of finances and what could the government do to help people that were in financial trouble perhaps. And uh, the senator asked me, he said, well, what would you tell the American family? And I immediately thought, when I tell him what I'm gonna tell him, he's going to laugh. And so I said to him, I said, Senator, I would tell the American family four things. Number one, spend less than you earn. Number two, avoid the use of debt. Number three, build margin or liquidity into your financial situation to meet the unexpected. And I said, four, I'd set long-term goals so that I could prioritize my spending between the short-term and the long-term. And I thought, I wonder what he's gonna say. And he picked up his pencil and he wrote down those four points. And then he said to me, he said, well, it seems to me that that'd work at any income level. And I said, you're right, Senator, including the United States government. And we had quite a conversation uh, after that about those four fundamental principles that were thousands of years old 
that work in the government or in business or wherever you might be. I would add to that a fifth, and that is to give generously. And those five are the way that you manage money throughout your life. God's word is transcendent. It speaks to every financial issue and it's never ever going to change. Well, that's what I learned by looking, by having that experience and then working with people, helping them make financial decisions. I said to a mega church pastor one time, I said, Tom, I know this after 40 years in the financial services world, that God's word speaks authoritatively to every financial decision, all financial planning. It gives wisdom for the process and it gives principles for the decision and it works at all times under any circumstances. In other words, it works as well in Africa as it does on Wall Street. It works as well for a single mom as it does for a billionaire. God's word is authoritative and it speaks and it's never gonna change. And he said to me, well, if that's the case, Ron, then why is it that the church is not seen as the center of financial wisdom? Now that's a great question because I think the church is perceived as being self-serving when it comes to money. With the best of motives, pastors can talk about stewardship and generosity. And I believe, however, that it's interpreted as self-serving perhaps, or there's an awful lot of financial advice that is given that is shame-based or guilt-based. God's word, the gospel of Jesus Christ is good news. And if the Lord allows me, I want to be able to live long enough to see the church as the center of financial wisdom and financial wherewithal so that people will be able to look to you and to me and say they know how to view money, how to think about money, how to act with money, and how to communicate with money. We're going to cover all of that in these sessions together. I'll never forget a, a couple that uh, I worked with many years ago, and uh, the, the husband died just a couple of years ago. And in that time, uh, they were able to give away a lot of money. And he was a very successful uh, CEO. Uh, but when I thought back over their life, here's what I saw. They were content with where they were. They were very confident in the financial decisions that they made, and they had excellent communication, husband to wife, and also parent to child. And I think that's the promise of God's word that following God's word in thinking about finances, in making decisions relative to finances, there is an end result. And that end result is contentment, it's, it's confidence, it's clarity of communication, it's consistency of behavior, it's everything that we would really want. And the way we're gonna start this process of talking about this is I want to give throughout this several weeks, I want to give you some transferable concepts, first of all. And I'll use a, just an illustration that if you would let me look at your checkbook and your tax return and your credit card statements, I could tell you what your goals, your values, and your priorities are because your finances, your checkbook reveals what you really value. And so here's a principle, here's a, we'll call it a transferable concept, which means you can transfer it from one person to another person, one generation to another person, to another generation. And the concept is this, that behavior always follows a belief system. 
Neil Anderson, a psychologist, wrote a book, and in there he said this, all behavior is the product of what we choose to think or believe. Trying to change behavior without changing what we believe and therefore think will never produce any lasting results. So the first thing that we want to talk about is this. Your behavior is a function of your belief. Now, every time that I give a talk, and I, I talk, give many, many speeches, there are really three questions that people are going to be wanting answered. And the questions are this. Number one, will I ever have enough? And if I do have enough, will it continue to be enough? And by the way, how much is enough? And I would say that they're really asking it this way. What will it take for me to be successful or significant or secure? These are the questions that they're trying to answer. And the reality is they're asking the wrong questions. And I'm going to tell you what the right questions are in just a few minutes. But we want to use an illustration here. It's called the iceberg diagram. In an iceberg, 90% of the iceberg is below the water and 10% is above the water. 10% is what we see, the 90% is what we don't see. And it illustrates this, that the thing that really, the, what is above the water line, the how or the what everybody sees is the actions that I take. But the actions that I take, the behavior that I exhibit is driven by what's below the water line. That's, and the, the kind of the ultimate big picture on it is my worldview. And a worldview, according to the dictionary, is the overall perspective from which one sees and interprets the world. So let's, that could be many worldviews. Every one of us has a worldview. We see the world in a particular way. We interpret the world in a particular way. And there's really two driving forces. In one case, it could be the culture that is driving my worldview. Culture being the advertising that I hear, the peers that influence me the things that I see in the world and how I interpret them. I see this big house and I see this new car, or I like to say, you know, I didn't even know what I needed till I went to the mall. The culture is driving my worldview, but what is important is what behavior do I exhibit as a, as a result of the worldview that I have. Now, here's what the culture says, that money will provide a means to success, in other words, when people look at me, if I have more money, I am successful. It will perhaps drive significance. It's uh, the more that I have, the more significant that I have. Or it may drive my security. So the world would say that I need to have more in order to be successful, significant, or secure. Now, God's word is entirely different from that, and we're going to take a look for most of the rest of the time at a biblical worldview. It is a whole life look. It is a eternal look at what I see, what I interpret, and how I interpret everything when it comes to making my financial decisions. And the biblical worldview, I believe, says this. I have three financial questions that I need to ask myself. The first question is, who owns it? The second question is, how much is enough? And the third question is, is the next steward of what God has entrusted to me prepared and chosen? So rather than saying, will I ever have enough? The real questions are, who owns it? Well, if God owns it, that means that I am a steward. Now that, if I believe that, that God owns it, 
it changes everything about the way that I view money and, and possessions. It views uh, everything that I view differently because he owns it. Now, if God owns it and he calls me to be a steward, I am a steward over money, of course, but I'm also a steward over my time. I'm a steward over the relationships he gives me. I'm a steward over the truth that I have. I'm a steward over my family. I'm a steward over everything because I'm here temporarily serving the owner. So the second big, big principle is that God owns it and therefore I am a steward. The first one was behavior is a function of my belief system. The second one is God owns it, therefore I am a steward. One of the first things that happened to me after I began practicing financial planning was that I got a call from a young heart surgeon. He was in his late 30s, and this was when heart surgery was really getting started. It was somewhat experimental even, but he had made a lot of money, and he and his wife had decided to build their dream home. Now, he had enough spiritual conviction that he had a question that he wanted to ask. And I was sitting in there then, and we were talking, and he said, Ron, is it okay for a Christian to live in a million-dollar home? Now, that's a really good question. And I immediately thought of James 1, 5, and I said, Lord, what do I say? And so my question back to him was, well, what do you think God wants you to do? And he said, well, I don't know. He's, and I said, well, I'm not God, so I can't tell you, but I do know that he'll answer that prayer. Do you spend any time uh, every day in prayer and Bible study and so forth? And he said, no, he didn't have the time because he worked many, many, many hours. And uh, so I said, well, what are you doing at 4 o'clock in the morning? And he said, well, generally sleeping. And I said, well, then you don't have anything better to do. Why don't you get up and spend 10 minutes asking God that question and reading whatever he might bring to your mind in his word? And he did. And about a year and a half later, we were with the family on vacation, and his wife said to me, Ron, I don't know what you did to him, but he's now spending two or three hours every day in prayer and Bible study. Uh, and this man went on, uh, he and his wife went on to uh, attempt to sell that home. They never could sell the home for one reason or another until just a few years ago. But that home became a center of influence uh, and hundreds of people came to Christ in that home. They, uh, and he never ever asked me the question again about, about the home. Uh, and he became an evangelical leader. He's the chairman of the board of several international ministries right now. But the question was, what do you think God would have you to do? And that's really the central question for all of us when it comes to money and money management. God, what would you have me to do? If I believe that God owns it all and that his word speaks to me about money and finances, then I think that God uses money in three ways in my life. Number one, he uses it as a tool. He uses it as a tool about something that I can use. I can use money as a tool, but the reality is that he also uses it as a tool in my life. He uses it many times as a test. Uh, Paul said that I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I'm in. So if you have little, it doesn't make you more godly. If you have more, it doesn't make you godly. The Bible doesn't say that. God uses money as a tool, but he also uses it as a test. Sometimes it forces me on my knees to say, I need something. Or it forces me on my knees to say, God, what am I going to do with what you've blessed me with? 
but he uses it as a tool, he uses it as a test. And the other thing that he uses it as, and that is as a testimony. And by that I mean, I believe that the world that is living in confusion and fear and greed and doubt and insecurity, trying to answer the question, will I ever have enough to be successful and significant or secure? The world has a right to look to you and to me and say, they're not better, but they're different. It doesn't mean that they have more or less. It means that they are different. Why? Because they evidence a spirit of contentment in the light of all of this confusion and in light of all of this uncertainty. They are content. Not only are they content, they know how they're making decisions, they're principle-based decisions, and they're living in confidence, and they have great communication between a husband and wife. Interestingly enough, the most significant reason given for divorce in America is finances. The reality is it's never finances. The reality is that finances reveal the cracks in a marriage. They reveal the cracks, the inability to communicate with one another, but it's never the money that's the issue. It's the relationship that's the issue. And God gives that money and those money issues as a development tool for me and for my, my wife and I. I know my wife and I, uh, we, we've been married for over 50 years and probably the greatest area that we have of uh, challenges in communication is about money. Why? Because she thinks differently about money than what I do. Why does she think differently? She was raised differently. She has different experiences. She has a different personality. She has different values perhaps. And you know what? The, in the Christian life, the only area that you can't fake is your stewardship. Why? Because your checkbook reveals it. So the world has a right to look to you and to me and say, they're different. They're not better than, they're different from. Not only are we different because of our uh, beliefs, but our beliefs become so strong that they become convictions. Two verses in the Bible as it relates to uh, money and the cultural worldview versus the biblical worldview is James 3, verses 16 and 17. In verse 16, for where envy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every kind of evil. But then there is a big but. Verse 17 says, but the wisdom from above is first pure, then peace-loving, gentle, compliant, full of mercy and good fruits, without favoritism and hypocrisy. Now here's what God has promised. James chapter one, verses five and six say this. Now if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives to all generously and without criticizing, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith without doubting, for the doubter is like the surging sea, driven and tossed by the wind. So, I have available to me the wisdom from God, supernatural wisdom, the God who is outside of time and space, the God of all eternity, has promised me that he'll give me the wisdom that I ask for when it comes to the decisions that I need to make. Let me close with a thought that the eternal perspective will always lead to contentment regardless of the circumstances. So if my, in my mind I understand that I am an eternal being, that God has called me into eternity, 
and that I am going to live for eternity and what I am experiencing here on earth is temporary. That perspective leads me to contentment because it's not about the here and now. It is always about eternity and it is always about following God's direction as I handle His resources. We've had three big thoughts in this particular session. Number one, that your behavior is a function of your belief system. Secondly, because God owns it, therefore I am a steward managing His property. And then third is an eternal perspective leads to contentment under any circumstance. I think over the next several days, as you think about these three things, if you just come back to those three things and realize what God has done for us for all eternity.